Well, thank you very much. Um, as you might imagine, uh, despite uh, this, this, this evening being about the future of London, as a historian, I'm going to start by taking a step back and looking at some of the origins of how we got to where we are today. Uh, I don't know how many of you actually uh, thought about how you got here. And I don't necessarily mean that in a sort of philosophical way, but actually how you physically got here. As uh, Roma was, was mentioning earlier, the lift, I think, uh, is, is a much forgotten sort of object within the history of urbanism. If you imagine, two years after the, um, uh, the Great Exhibition in London, uh, P.T. Barnum was invited to set up a rival event uh, in New York, in uh, Bryant Park. Uh, and here he invited a young uh, engineer called Alicia Otis, who had had a number of schemes, a number of things had fallen through, but uh, he had been invited on this occasion to uh, display his safety elevator. And so at three o'clock every single day in the sort of central hall of uh, this, this uh, great exhibition, he created a performance in which he and his assistants moved onto the stage. There was a platform there, and the assistants pulled with ropes as the platform with Alicia on it rose up 30 feet into the air. He then calmed the audience beneath him and asked one of his assistants to use an axe and cut the rope. Everyone assumed at that moment that the platform was going to crash to the ground, but it juddered slightly and stopped after about six inches. After everyone had gasped, Alicia Otis announced, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. And this really was the moment when... In some ways, the modern city was born because, as Rome was saying, before this moment, there was only perhaps one place in the world where you could have a building over six or seven stories high, and that was Sana in the Yemen. But yet what you had with a steel-operated lift, as well as steel-framed buildings, is an ability to grow up, to create a vertical city. At exactly that same moment you could take exactly the same technology and put it flat, horizontally, on the ground and, using engines, drive people outwards further to the edges of the city. And at, as a result, suburbia was born. And so just this one piece of quite simple technology allowed the city both to grow up and to grow out. And this really was the moment where the city that we know and that we, we grew up in was born. And so we have seen other cities throughout the 20th century grow and grow up, the sort of vision of the skyscrapers of New York. But how did it happen here? And how did it happen in particular over there? And how did it happen so recently? Actually, why London became a vertical city is not really an architectural story at all. It's got far more to do with business, with the way that people decided to think about the city and the pressures put on the city of London itself. If you imagine that in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher called for the deregulation of the markets. Before this time, pretty much all deals were done face to face. This was the age of gentlemanly finance, where people would meet on the floor of the Royal Exchange and do their deals almost in person. And so as a result, most stockbroking firms were local almost in basis. And they could hold five or six people within an office space, maybe a floor of an office. 
But once you get deregulation after uh, 1986 and 87, suddenly there is a different demand for trade. Suddenly London is opened up to international markets. And as a result, those small stockbroking firms got bought up. They needed larger amounts of reserves and collateral. Also, the technology that allowed this trading to occur meant that you couldn't do it in these small, confined spaces. You certainly couldn't do it face-to-face because you were dealing with people all over the globe. And so you needed office space with something like a 1,000 square feet and those sort of ticker tapes and those people shouting on phones and those red braces. You needed all those things. And the City of London did not deliver on that. The City of London was built on a 19th-century grid which was based on a medieval street plan. You had these small, tight office spaces. And so the major banks started to look outside of the city walls, outside the square mile. And this is why Canary Wharf started to grow. This is why people like the Salomon Brothers started to move to Victoria and other people started looking around Billingsgate. And so the City of London had to decide how they would bring back, as it were, the financial industry and make sure that it was within the square mile. And this is when, in 1994, there was an IRA bomb which occurred just uh, by St. Helens Bishop's Gate and it destroyed the Baltic Exchange. And this was one of the great 19th century buildings, one of those places where people had come previously to do their trade. And yet, after the bomb, there was uh, a number of discussions about how to preserve or bring back this building into use. And initially they wanted to reproduce it exactly as it was. But they found that nobody really wanted this building. And so they decided to create an eight-storey building and then preserve on the ground floor the original Baltic Exchange. But again, nobody really wanted this building. It wasn't useful. And so this was the moment when they decided that actually they could replace something that was historic, something that up until that moment should have been preserved and replace it with a building of great architectural significance. And they invited uh, Norman Foster to create the Millennium Tower. Initially, this tower was, as it were, a square or rectangular block, fairly sort of traditional type of skyscraper that you sort of see pretty much in every international city. Slowly, the form started to change, and what you got in the end was the gherkin. And so the gherkin was completed by 2004, and this was considered to be such a success that from there there was a, I would sort of call, almost a a rush for the vertical city. If you imagine that in the last 10 years, we have now had not only the gherkin, but almost 260 skyscrapers either approved or actually built. Now, this vertical city reflects something which is very different. Um, the, the, the previous head planner, the man perhaps almost most responsible for all of this architectural innovation, a man called uh, Peter Wynne Rees, uh, has called the last decade the second great fire of London. If you imagine how devastating in 1666 the, the fire that took just three days in September destroyed three quarters of the city, which had to be replaced over the next 60 years. We've almost covered the same amount of space within 10 years with a totally different type of fabric, a totally different type of architecture. 
what's really changing now is while these buildings started off as office spaces, most of the buildings that are about to be planned are actually residential spaces. They are responding to the demand for housing and they are popping up in clusters all over the city. So in Nine Elms and Vauxhall and uh, you know, some various spaces like Victoria. Now the idea that these are residential rather than business responds to, I think, um, a, a, a change in demand. There is undoubtedly um, a sense that the city has to, not just as a place of work, but a place where we live and grow, is going to have to transform. It's going to have to densify in a certain way, that either we build out again, using that idea of the railways moving us further and further out, or we build up. But this still puts us at something of a crisis, and we're talking about here essentially fabric. We're not talking about who lives here. And while I think that the, the, the story of the physical changes and transformation over, uh, in London over the last 10 years is important, and the way that technology is transforming and informing the way that we live and work around the city, I think there is a social factor that is too often ignored. There are social questions that we don't ask ourselves when we do these things or when we use and promote these technologies. And I think when you think of the things that are changing London, so often we think about these big buildings, but the thing that actually is changing London is this. This is having more of an impact on the way that London is transforming than anything else. This mobile computer, this telephone, and I've written down uh, all the things that it does, for me at least, is a map and wayfarer, wayfinder. It's a ticket holder, a timetable, a newspaper, and we weekly subscription to magazines, a mobile library, a music player, a radio, a games console, a TV, a bank manager, a portal to my social media, email and messages. It gives me weather reports. It's a camera and a photo album. It's a compass. It's a spirit level. It's a torch. It's a diary. It's a notebook. It's a contact book. And finally, it's a phone. And soon it will be my bank card. But this is also a tracking device. And this is also being used and influencing the way that we use the city. If you think that the phone is the most important thing that we carry around with us and the thing that is determining the way that we use the city, there's a fascinating uh, uh, report that came out um, at the beginning of this year from Queensland and it was about um, looking at that relationship between how technology and the city sometimes doesn't quite come together. You know, we so often think about and we're sold this idea of smart cities and of the future city being the Internet of Things and all these things which clearly are going to be transforming and being sold to us in radical ways. You know, the, the Internet of Things is currently being priced at $1.9 trillion. So people are interested. People are thinking about how they can get a bit of that and how that can actually transform the city. The Internet of Things does lots of different things. It's, on one hand, it will 
potentially make the city an incredibly more sustainable or even resilient place. On the other hand, it will be your fridge that actually orders milk when it realises that you're running out. So it's in, on one side, it's incredibly trivial, but on the other side, it will change the way that the city works in terms of infrastructure. But the way that we, as people, are going to rub up against this Internet of Things or this smart city is, is, is fascinating. And so going back to this report that came from uh, Queensland, it was about texting and walking. And it comes with the fascinating title of Texting and Walking, Strategies for Postural Control and the Implication for Safety. And what this uh, report uh, uh, told us is that while most pedestrian injury statistics are going down, injuries while walking around the city texting have gone up. So 10% of all accidents at the A&E in Erie County, Queensland, are to do with people who are walking around the city looking down at their phones. This is particularly dangerous amongst the 16 to 25-year-olds. And it shows that actually when one is walking and texting, it slows you down. It makes you meander and weave as if you were drunk. And so often it can actually kill you because you're not looking where you're going. Now, this reality, this moment where in our everyday lives we rub up against the technology which is supposedly going to take us to this new, optimised, efficient, smooth-flowing city, it reminds us that actually the city of the future is going to be human. It's going to be social and it's going to be messy. And I think, frankly, thank God... I celebrate the messy and the human and the social. One way of thinking about it is, is, is this, this modern future city is kind of like an alpha city. Um, but I want my city to be, in some ways, in perpetual beta. And I think I'm not alone in that. The, the, the uh, view from the Shah did a survey around this event, and they asked a number of different questions. And what's very interesting and why people uh, are very interested in technology, 80% of people who were asked want more green spaces in the city. 60% of people want more spaces for bicycles. And even 80% want uh, Oxford Street to be pedestrianised. And so we need to sort of remind ourselves, despite all these technological offers on the table, you know, what a city's good for. And in order to answer that question, I think the real question that one needs to ask is what and who the city is for. Because it's about the social. It's about people. And the fabric is something that comes round the places where we come together. And there's one image which I think is worth thinking about, which, which really, I think, brings together many of my ideas of what the future city should be and what a future city can be. And there was a, uh, 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 an American writer, a man called William H. White, uh, who took over the New York planning department in 1969. He, had, uh, he took over the job from uh, a man called Robert Moses, who was one of the leading planners uh, uh, that, in history, perhaps. Uh, he was the man who absolutely brought to New York uh, modernity, you know, through highways and bridges and all these different kind of things. Uh, and what William White was interested to do when he came into the office 
was to find out if any of these things had worked out. And he discovered that nobody in this office had ever gone back to any of the projects and said, how are people using them? Does this work? You know, what are people's reactions to it? And so he decided that what he would do is he would watch people use the city. And he was practically the first person ever to get people to look at how they used the city. And so he brought together a group of students from the local Hunter College. And uh, he asked them to look at very different places. So Seagram Plaza at lunchtime. How did people come together and how did people move around this public space? He also looked at um, the street corner just outside uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, one of the sort of main um, uh, sort of shopping areas, one of the most popular department stores in New York. And what he discovered was, was kind of fascinating. So over four days, he watched how people bumped into each other and where they talked to each other. And he discovered that a large majority of people, about 30% of people, would actually stop outside the front door of Saks Fifth Avenue. So they would be coming out and they would bump into somebody. Or they would just stop there because that was, seemed to be a place where people congregated. The other, almost 60% of people, stopped, bumped into people, had encounters, had chance meetings with people on the street corner. Now, street corners are designed to be crossed. They're designed to be moved through. They are designed as ways of getting people away. They are the way of, of, of allowing the flow of the city to keep everything moving. But it doesn't matter how you plan a city, because when you put people in it, they're going to do what they want to do. They are going to be irrational. They're going to meet, and they're going to stop right in the place where you want to be and where you want to get a move on. They're going to do that, and that's what's so fantastic about the place. My fear is when we think about technology and we think about how to optimise or make the city efficient, we're going to get rid of that street corner. And actually, that street corner is the place where the city really comes to life. That is where the city's creativity really emerges. That is where we come together and learn how to be citizens, where we learn our differences from each other. So when we think about the future of the city... Technology is going to be a big story, obviously. And so is density, and so is verticality. We've got to also talk about that life on the street corner. So thank you. Thank you.